Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm here for Ayanna Jones. I'm here for so many black women, so many black men, so many Latino women. was not filmed, Minnesota and the rest of them would be trying to play a cover-up. They almost tried to pull it this morning by saying, once we put him in handcuffs, he started having medical issues. He didn't have no medical issue. He didn't, was nothing wrong with the man when he came and walked into Cub Food. The only thing they was able to do is try to claim he got medical issues. If your knee in my neck for more than 10 minutes, I'm going to have medical issues too, and I'm going to die just like he did. Well, good morning. Welcome to our program. Um, we have a very special program today that is going to cover a number of areas, and um, we're obviously getting into discussion, in part as a result of the recent events involving the life of George Floyd, the protests in the aftermath of his killing in Minneapolis, his funeral, memorial service, the way in which this country has been gripped in a fashion that has not occurred here at this level for quite some time. And that's a great motivator for speaking with the guest who is joining us. I'm very pleased to say on our program today, we're joined by the president and CEO of New York's Urban League. We'll find out about the Urban League in the course of our discussion. Arva Rice is joining us on our program. And we're going to be talking about this uh, concept of why black people still can't wait. Arva, good morning. It's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Thank you so much for the invitation. At this time, you know, there's so many different areas where we can go in discussion. How have you been moved by what you've seen in terms of the outpouring of emotions in this country? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I have been asked, uh, how is this moment different? 
And I think that uh, I am not old enough to have marched during the civil rights movement, um, but my uh, parents were around then. And I think that this moment is uh, somewhat different. Um, I think it's different because the outpouring, first of all, the numbers of individuals that we have seen on the streets, um, the, it's intergenerational, it's, it's uh, uh, biracial, it is um, individuals who are all around the country who are focusing in on this moment. And uh, as you, as we all know, it was after after the coronavirus hit us and sent us all to our homes. And so, even if you were an essential worker, once you got home, there wasn't any place for you to go, right? And so, because of that, we were all focused on the same thing at one time. And so, we had we all looked at George Floyd. We all saw the video at the same time, and it caused this common outrage. Um, and so, the coronavirus, this disease that has no vaccination, uh, has has no vaccine, um, caused us to look at what I believe is America's original disease, which is racism. I'm struck, I'm sure you're struck as well, by the fact that so many of the individuals on the streets speaking out are relatively young. Mm -hmm. What message does that send? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, it's, that we all have our time of awakening. Um, for my mother, uh, who was born in 1946, hers was Emmett Till. For myself, it was Rodney King. For some of the young professionals I work with in my organization, originally it was Eric Garner, and now they're uh, with some of the newer ones who have joined the program. Now it's this moment with George Floyd, and let's not forget the uh, tragic loss, loss of Ahmaud Arbery as well as Breonna Taylor that have together brought about this moment in time. And unfortunately, I think that every generation has to fight for freedom. And so this is their moment when they are realizing that there's still work to be done, that there's injustices that need to be to be fought. And so there's people who are taking to the streets and marching every day or every weekend or every opportunity that they, that they have. And then there's others who are taking on really courageous conversations um, in their workplaces, even if their workplaces are on Zoom calls. Uh, but they're they're starting to look at this and address this issue in a way that it has not been done before. And doing that... Is the natural thought, because, you know, many of us tend to be very skeptical, mm-hmm. you know, there'll be um, a strong reaction initially, and then things kind of sort of fade away very often. That generally has been the history of events. But we're seeing something quite the opposite. It almost seems like the intensity is building. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing that? Yes, I think that this moment uh, is different because once people took to the streets and started to make um, a demand for whether it's defund the police, whether it's just, you know, hands up, don't shoot, and, you know, using more rhetoric, there was a set of legislators who were already in place and available to start to put into place legislation. So in New York City, um, for instance, as uh, the governor, as we know, has has passed uh, a set of legislation that is that is forward thinking and something like we've never seen seen before in the say their name reform agenda. That reform agenda is built is built on a set of legislation and policies um, that came from different legislators that have been proposed over the course of the last five, six, seven years, and they just never were passed before. And so, being able to have 
state Senate leader, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, as the leader, being able to have Carl Hastings in the Assembly as the leader. They were able to push forward this legislation and get things done in a record amount of time. So they had uh, what's different about this moment in time is that we have legislators who are sympathetic to these issues, who already were looking at these issues, who had a set of solutions and were able to push those forward. So if ever there was a moment for us to say why voting matters, it's this one right now. And this, I guess, is a way of answering those of us who at times are very skeptical about um, lawmakers. And absolutely, you know, mm-hmm. we're actually seeing things enacted, seeing people live up to promises that they're making. Absolutely. And and let's be clear, we understand the skeptics. The moment that we're having in time right now is built over, you know, 400 years of, of oppression. But it's also, for those of us who've lived in, in New York City, it's Yusuf Hawkins and it's Sean Bell and it's Eric Gardner. So there's a reason why we're skeptical, because we've seen people either not be charged, we've seen people be charged and, and actually, you know, getting not guilty sentences. And so we don't have a record of justice here. So there's a reason reason for the skepticism, but there's also a reason for the hope because of what we've seen over the course of the last week. So in terms of what's actually needed, I mean, it's it's a multifaceted approach. I, I know that you are advocating, but let's start by talking about this whole idea of the justice system, because you've alluded to this a couple of different times, and even in the opening of our program today, there was a comment that was being made about that. We're hearing an awful lot of calls for reform of the justice system. Mm-hmm. How does that really start? Hmm. Well, I mean, it definitely starts with some of the legislation that um, Governor Cuomo has uh, proposed, passed, and signed um, within the last two weeks. And so I think that it's important for us to have, um, we ask for a repeal of 50A and for your um, listeners, 50A is a legislation that for a long time kept the general public from knowing about a police officer's record. And so now that that information will be publicly available. We wanted to bar chokeholds. It didn't make any sense that, that a police officer, police officer could do a chokehold of someone and that not be considered um, unlawful. And so being able to put that in place, we, you know, we unfortunately, so many of us saw Amy Cooper make that phone call where she weaponized being a black man watching a bird, you know, doing bird watching in Central Park. And so now we're prohibiting false 911 calls. And then we're also designating an AG, the attorney general, as an independent prosecutor when there are times when police officers have misconduct. Uh, For so long, we've heard that in the police department, you're going to have a few bad apples, but the majority of police officers really do their job well. It's a tough job, and they're committed to it. And we believe that. We do believe that the majority of police officers are good police officers. However, we don't know any other industry where it's okay to have a few bad apples. In the in the airline industries, you can't have a few bad apples who crash planes. In the in the restaurant business, you can't have a few cooks who kill their their patrons. So why is it okay for there to be a few bad apples in the policing department? So I really am excited about having the attorney general um, as a as the lead independent prosecutor. Also because I'm a huge fan of our uh, existing attorney general. But I think that that's some of the legislation on the state level. 
And then, as you also know, there's the Justice and Policing Act that was uh, also proposed that looks at some things that should be done on the federal level as well in order to um, call for additional accountability and also to create a national registry so a police officer can't do a number of different um, wrongdoings in Illinois and then, you know, move to California. No one ever know what he did in Illinois and continue that behavior in another state. Is it me or does that surprise you that there isn't already a system of checks and balances in place to prevent that sort of thing from even being a possibility, especially in an age where, you know, there's so much information available. I would think that's all that should already be part of quote unquote, the system. Right. And, and I think that that's what this moment is about. I think it's a, it's a moment for all of us to have to be working with the same set of information and I, as a, you know, an African American woman who was raised by individuals who were, uh, who picked cotton in the South and moved to the North in order to build a better life for their children, uh, you know, I am not surprised, uh, by this, by these injustices. But I think that for the rest of many other people in the world who that's not their life experiences, they're, they're finding out that basic things that should have been in place are not. Okay. Now, this leads us perfectly into an area that we've heard talked about a lot, and it seems that every time this comes up in discussion, there also needs to be, or also is taking place, an explanation of exactly what is meant by this idea. And specifically, I'm referring here to the concept of defunding the police, because we hear Mm. people call for that at times. Mm What's your reaction to that idea, first of all? And secondly, is it realistic? Mm -hmm. So there are some individuals who believe that defunding the police entirely um, would lead to um, more community policing, would lead for... um, this, this idea and notion of accountability would go away because we would no longer have the police in its, its structure that it's that we have right now. Um, our our governor has suggested that um, in his most recent executive um, his, his most exec, his most recent executive uh, order that police are now responsible for developing plans that talk about how they will um, do better policing and that those plans are are required by April of next year in order to receive continued funding from the state. At the New York Urban League, we believe that there is funding that should be um, reduced at the New York at the New York City Police Department and better suited in the investment with human services um, and also additional programming for our children and families. What we mean specifically by that is there are a number of assignments that were given to the police department over the course of the last few years. That includes um, serving, have police uh, officers in schools, police officers being responsible for responding when um, individuals and households were having issues with individuals who had mental health issues. And we think that we would be better off served as a community if there were a different set of individuals who were responsible for dealing with disciplinary issues in school buildings and we're responsible for dealing with people who had mental health issues um, in, in families in uh, community situations. And so we don't believe in defunding the police.
police entirely, but we do believe that the police officers' budget should be reduced, particularly because over the course of the last five years, we have seen a reduction in violent crimes. We've seen a, a reduction in general uh, crimes in the city, and the uh, NYP budget has continued to increase. And so we think that there are some specific assignments that have given, been given to NYPD that could be better um, implemented with other city agencies. You know, one of the things that struck me uh, literally today as I was coming to the station, to the building, because to be perfectly honest with you, I haven't been in the city since the beginning of March. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was struck by exactly how many boarded up windows mm-hmm. I was seeing uh, going through different neighborhoods and just looking. I mean, it's, it, that's one of the images that does not come across clearly in uh, news coverage. And I've seen a lot of the news coverage from a variety of different sources, but you don't really get a flavor of this unless you're physically on hand. And then, I mean, it's just, it's almost overwhelming when you see that. And my reason for bringing this up is, um, unfortunately, at times, there have been incidents where there have been peaceful protests taking place. And then violence will break out. Mm-hmm. And some of it has gotten very, very unruly at times. Does that, the incidence of the violence, does that take away at all from the effect, the real message of the protests? Or is this something that can be attributed to individuals who maybe have nefarious motives for even being part of a protest? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's important for us to recognize that there are people who are protesting and they are protesting injustice. Um, then there are individuals who are rioting, who are there just to in, incite violence and mayhem. Um, and then there are people who are looters. And so um, it's very, three very, you know, different groupings of people. Um, does, does looting and rioting take away from the protest message? Absolutely. Um, but people are angry. Um, like I said, this is, this is not just about these three individuals, Brianna Abud and um, George Floyd, who, who were tragically taken from us. It's about Trayvon Martin, and it's about Sean Bell. Um, it's about Yusef Hawkins. It's about uh, Amadou Diallo. It is about decades of um, mis- uh, mistreatment at the hands of the police. And so there are individuals who are going to work very hard at putting together legislation, and that is their role, and that's how they're going to make change. And then there's going to be individuals who march and are able to be engaged in peaceful protest. And then there are others who unfortunately see this as their only opportunity to, you know, grab this bag or to, you know, grab this TV set. But the fact is, is that, you know, whether there are looters or not, there are injustices, and that's what we need to be focused on. It's it's important to keep that focus, but I guess the question I'm raising becomes one of uh, 
public perception mm-hmm. in terms of how it is that the protests are then viewed. Is it, and is this something that can be attributed to media coverage? Is the coverage at times skewed to the fact that, you know, looting will break out, violence breaks out? Um, is it too much attention that's focused on that and perhaps not enough being focused on the peaceful side of what took place? Well, I mean, uh, Fox News has definitely been accused of, of re-showing some of the images in Minneapolis of uh, some of the looting that took place during the very uh, first few days and not showing as much of the peaceful protest. Uh, we understand that, you know, um, things that are sensational sell. So I think that there can be a tendency to focus in on the violence. But once again, the violence that caused all of this is the fact that there was a knee on the neck of a person for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And that's what the big violence is that we're talking about right now. That should be the focus of the conversation. That incident. When you heard that that had taken place, And when you saw the video the first time, what was your reaction? I have to say that the first time that I went to watch the video, that I couldn't watch it all the way through. Um, It was too painful. It hurt too much. And it took me three times uh, before I was able to watch it all the way through. Uh, It was a moment of not again. Um... It was a moment of fear of how this would impact our communities, never having any sense that there would be a worldwide outcry. And then there was a a secondary moment for me, and that was being part of one of the uh, rallies that our public advocate, Jamani Williams, put together. And at the close of the rally, he had everybody go into Flatbush Avenue, stop the street for a few moments and had everybody kneel in the middle of uh, Flatbush Avenue, and we knelt for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And so to experience that in that way really hit me in a way that I, that working in this, in this movement um, has never hit me before. And I think that my moments of, of being in Flatbush Avenue or other people's moments of just, you know, sitting and, and watching it on television and or uh, marching in the streets uh, has caused for an awakening in our, in our city, in our country, and in our world that we've never seen before. In terms of the federal government and the federal action that is needed to take place, do you feel that there's receptiveness on the part of the administration for that to move forward? I think it's going to be harder to push push forward the legislation uh, at the federal level. I definitely applaud um, our own congressman, Congressman Espiat, for the role that he has taken. Obviously, uh, Senators Cory, Senator Cory Booker, Senator Kamala Harris, uh, for the leadership roles that they played. Um, uh, Jerry Nadler for his work. I think that it is is bold and courageous. I do have my concerns because we do not just because of the. Democratic Republican divides uh, in our in our at the national level whether we'll be able to push forward the level of 
of um, legislation that is necessary at this time, but we have to keep pushing for it. Um, it's important, and we have people in key levers of power that, once again, we didn't have, you know, 30, 20, 10, or five years ago. And so we'll push and get and move forward as much as we can. And the National Urban League, of which I am a member, has been pushing very hard on this legislation in order to, to make sure that it, that, that it uh, is pushed forward. I didn't ask you, and I did it, did it purposely at the uh, beginning of our discussion. Can you explain exactly what the Urban League does? Sure. Uh, Urban Leagues were started over 100 years ago um, when individuals were making the great transition from the south to the north. Um, we were facing um, lynchings, and we were facing a level of injustice that is that was you know unprecedented. Um, individuals were you know getting lynched, and the NAACP was 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 counting um, you know those lynchings on a daily basis. And they started one year before the New York Urban League, and the New York Urban League was always focused on the economics and wanting to provide equal rights and equal justice uh, for individuals. And so the first Urban League was started in New York City and um, spread through uh, throughout the, the country and provided opportunities for education, employment, housing, and health care for individuals who are, who, are, who are making that move in that great transition. And so now, over 100 years later, the New York Urban League still works in education, employment, and advocacy, helping individuals to go to college, helping them, providing them with scholarships, helping individuals to find employment, and also providing an advocacy agenda and speaking out and speaking boldly when um, there are inequalities that happen um, in our country, uh, particularly in our city. And the New York Urban League is one of 90 Urban League affiliates around the country. And uh, we believe that inequality is unacceptable. And so we uh, work and fight to empower communities and change lives every day. How do people who are listening to our discussion today find the New York Urban League? And are there ways that they can be supportive of your efforts? Absolutely. So we can be found on the web uh, at uh, www.nyul.org. That's nyul.org. We, like the rest of the uh, businesses around the, uh, New York City, were, were uh, moved to to uh, do our work virtually. And so we have been providing virtual programming over the course of um, the last 10 weeks during New York pause, but we have still been able to serve our children and families virtually. We've lost, launched a family fund for individuals who have been impacted by COVID-19 and so are looking for support for rent and housing and utilities and all those sorts of things. And so we'll um, be providing cash grants to them and people can, can contribute to that to that grant fund, and then also support our overall work as we look to um, put together an agenda that really looks at how we can improve policing, but also help our workplaces be more responsive and reflect the diversity of our great city. Arva Rice, who is president and CEO of New York's Urban League. She's uh, joined us by phone. I'm Bob Salter. One of the things I was thinking heading into our discussion today, too, is to talk about the this idea, because this also has been brought up a number of times, of how it is that we heal in mm. this country and how we move forward in that fashion. Um, because I'm also thinking about 
does this idea of respect for one another play a big part in that healing? Mm -hmm. I think it's about respect for one another, and I think it's about increased awareness. Uh, I, this this moment in time, as I mentioned, has you know is unprecedented. You know, we've never been everybody forced to be at home at the same time. We're we're consuming the same things, uh, and so it has brought in a heightened level of awareness. And so there are individuals who will now walk into you know stores and bodegas and restaurants and be have a heightened awareness of whether the black family sitting next to them has to sit and wait longer before the waitress comes over and takes their order. Um, and so that level of heightened awareness, we hope, will not just last for a week or a month, but it, that it will be sustained. We hope that um, that corporations, workplaces will open themselves up to conversation. I have had numbers of our corporate donors who have called us and said that they want their corporation to not only issue a statement, but they want to talk about how they can diversify their workplace. And so how can they partner with the New York Urban League to help make that happen? How can we help them to identify talent? How can we help them to identify individuals for their boards of directors? How can we help them to structure a conversation so that that their um, employees can talk about race and have these courageous conversations. So we hope that this is not just a particular moment in time, that when we move into phase two of NY pause, the people kind of remember this is just an activity that they did when they were um, um, part of New York pause, but then they went back to, back to things being the way that they were. We hope that this is a moment that people look back on and it significantly change forever the way that they think about race and the way that they interact with their, um, with their colleagues and also with their community. Is it wrong, you know, in response to what you've just said, for some people to also think, isn't it about time? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes, yes. Isn't it about time? You know, to go back to this point that I raised at the very beginning of our discussion today, because you wrote about this, why black people still can't wait. Mm -hmm. What motivated you to put your thoughts in writing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I felt motivated to... Um talk about what this moment in time is about, um, to say what are some of the things that would, that would improve the moment. So to write about, uh, as you know, the, the Why We Can't Wait reference is a book that was written by Dr. Martin Luther King when he was, um, in, when he was jailed. And so he wrote a, a letter at first to um, some of the individuals who were his critics, as well as some of the folks who were his supporters, saying why that particular moment in time was important for Black people to, to, to have a set of demands around civil rights. And so we're in a, in a similar moment right now. And so I thought it was important for us to talk about what are specifically some of the things that we wanted in terms of police reform. And as I mentioned, the Say Their Name reform agenda speaks almost to every one of those that we talked about. I thought it was important for us to say what allyship could look like. And by that, I mean, how can we partner with white people who are concerned, who are being uh, awakened? And for some of those who have been our allies along the way, how can they move to being co-conspirators and help us to, to set an agenda that they can par partner with along the way? Uh, and then I thought it was important for us to have some things that we can do as individuals. You know, like I said, this 
moment is a salient call for the importance of voting. We need to make sure that we respond to the census. We need to make sure that we are, our uh, giving is reflective of our values, whether it's giving to the Urban League, whether it's giving to the NAACP, whether it's contributing um, to Black Lives Matter or to the ACLU, but then making sure that we have an individual investment as well. And so I thought that in this moment, it was important to have the Urban League's voice providing an analysis of the moment, but also some concrete steps on how we can move forward. Those three words we're hearing a lot, seeing indelibly imprinted into our minds. Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. How important is it that that message keeps at the forefront? Mm-hmm. Um, it's important because, uh, you know, I woke up a week after the uh, George Floyd's uh, murder and I went onto my Facebook page. I'm originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I saw the Facebook post of one of my former high school mates. And she said that after watching the George Floyd video that she had been um, called to rethink her thoughts on All Lives Matter and that she now understood that Black Lives Matter was a call for a recognition that some people's um, lives are valued more so than others and that Black Lives Matter is such an important call to action. And and I think that that's why it's important that we continue to focus on that. That it's not about the the the, the um, um, vandalism that's happened. It's not about the, the rioting that's happened. But it's about the fact that some lives continue to be valued to be valued more than others, and that is um, codified in our legislation. It is um, uh, put deeply into our laws and our policies and our practices. And it is up to every one of us as individuals to ask how we're working individually and as a group and a collective in order to eradicate racism in our city, our country, and our world. And to get those laws, those policies addressed, does that begin with conversation? It absolutely begins with first awareness recognizing that that the, the saying of Black Lives Matter is important because there is a uh, conversation that black families have to have with their sons and their daughters that white people do not have to have. And as long as that is the case, that is an inequality that we, we do not believe is acceptable. And so until that, we have a recognition, first of all, that there is an equality that is there then we move towards putting together um, uh, conversations, laws, practices that can move us towards eradicating those differences. When you say there's that conversation that has to take place um, Mm -hmm. by um, black parents with their sons, their daughters, some people listening to our discussion today, I'm assuming, may not know what you mean by that. Mm -hmm. How do you make them aware of what you're talking about? I mean, I think it's about having um, having conversation. As I mentioned, I've had a number of our corporate donors who have have called us and wanted us to help to assist them in conversations that they're having in their within their workplaces and helping to develop moving beyond just their their statement denouncing racism, but but what happens after that? 
and um, one particular uh, partner that we have who has done extremely well, an African-American professional, um, lives in a, a wonderful suburb in Westchester, and had that moment when he turned and he saw that his son was going to take his car and, you know, going to go see one of his friends and realized that his son, you know, had his hoodie pulled up over his head and was about to step into a Land Rover and drive off and felt the need to have the conversation once again with his son because he'd had it originally when he, he learned how to drive, but to secondly say that his goal in life was not to, in any conversation with a police officer, that he just needed to come home alive. That, there, that, that how he should speak to him, how he should show respect to him, how he should be deferential to that person in order to make sure that they came home alive. And that's not a conversation that white families have to have with their children. Should we be hearing more about this than we are hearing in Mm -hmm. this whole presidential election year and discussions? Well, I think that we will continue to have this conversation. The fact that the governor was able to put such incredible uh, police reform legislation in place in such a short period of time, but the people are still marching means that people recognize that police reform is one area. But now let's look at housing reform. Now let's look at um, prison, the prison industrial uh, complex, that racism doesn't just raise its ugly head in one area, but that it is pervasive in our community in our, and in our society. And so now that everyone has been woken to that fact, um, I believe that once people wake up, that they're going to stay awake and that we will be continue to speak to this well into November and that our candidates will have to continue to, to speak on this. And it's up to us to hold them accountable. And is there also a need to, um, I guess, drum home the message of the impact of, you know, what we've all to some extent been dealing with in one form or another, this whole COVID-19 pandemic the real impact of that in brown and black communities. And yes, the, the, um, dispa- the, dispar- the disparity there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, um, it, it, is, it is important. Um, we decided, the New York Urban League decided that we wanted to have a virtual town hall about two weeks into the New York pause. Um, actually, we decided at the beginning of the New York pause to, to do the virtual town hall in about two weeks, and we actually held it. And the reason why we held it is we thought that uh, usually when things impact white America, they can impact African-American America uh, even more so. And so we thought that that impact would be one of economic. If people had to stop working and have to go home, that there would be this huge impact on uh, the African-American um, community. We often refer to the to the term that if white America has a cold, that black America would have pneumonia. And so we, we decided to do these virtual town halls. At that time, they were just passing the first version of the CARES Act and, um, you know, uh, hundreds and of, of thousands of, of uh, New Yorkers were, you know, heading to the hospital and or um, uh, coming down with this with this disease. Literally three days before our first virtual town hall, the numbers started to come out in um, in Milwaukee, in Detroit, 
uh, also in Louisiana and then in New York that African Americans were dying at a at a larger rate uh, that we represented a, a huge amount of up to forty percent of the of the deaths from uh, COVID nineteen and found that it was because we have unlying, underlying health conditions because we live in um, crowded conditions and so there isn't that that opportunity for social distancing we are concentrated in um, roles of essential workers um, and then we were also working in hospitals themselves and so as a result of that, particularly in New York City, that there was a higher incidence of, uh, of deaths of African Americans. As time went on, we unfortunately found that Latino men were also extremely susceptible to the disease, not only getting it, but actually uh, losing their lives as a result of it. Uh, then as time went on, we found out that it was also uh, particularly uh, a case for our older um, uh, individuals, individuals who are in nursing homes and, and that sort of uh, place and space. And so the the issues that we were having uh, have only been exacerbated through COVID-19. And so it's important as we go forward, and one of the things that we do uh, give our mayor, Mayor de Blasio, um, credit for is the race, um, race and Equity Task Force that he has put together that is led by Deputy Mayor Phil Thompson and his wife, um, the First Lady, Shirlane McRae, that is looking particularly at how these uh, racial inequities have impacted our communities and what we can do about it going forward. Mm. And hopefully that's think, enough um, that's enough of a priority on the part of policymakers. I'm sorry, interrupt. Mm-hmm. No, no, um it's a it's a uh, extremely good point. Um and we we have learned some things. Uh we've learned some things through the uh, impact and the positive effect of social distancing through being able to, you know, constantly wash our hands, to be able to provide individuals with important um, PPE equipment. And so we'll continue to do that um, and, and put those, those, those policies um, and put those practices into place. Um, but we do not have a vaccine. And so until we have a vaccine, we will need to uh, continue to, to, to do this work um, and, and continue to educate our communities. But the inequality uh, that has been underscored through COVID-19 is something that we as um, individuals who do this work need to make sure that we are continue to, to fight for and make sure that our nonprofit organizations are there in order to support our communities and that we continue to, to, to fight for the resources that our communities need in order to succeed, um, heal, and go forward. What keeps you optimistic in the work that you're doing and in discussions like the one we're having today? Mm-hmm. I think what keeps me optimistic is that um, the work of allies, and I think that the work of allies has increased over the course of the of the last few years, few years and it certainly is in the course of the, the last few weeks. I think that the role of our legislators has been incredible. Uh, the fact, as I mentioned, that they were able to pull out legislation that they have been fighting and working for for years and to be able to implement that in such a, a, a swift way. I cannot thank enough Andrea Stewart, our, our state um, leader, Andrea Stewart's cousins, our assembly leader, Carl Hastings, and our governor, um, Governor Cuomo, for being able to put, put into place legislation so quickly and for those advocates. Um, the fact is, is that, you know, I've, uh, Reverend Al, um, Reverend Al, his work that he's done, um, the work of, um, the NAACP president, Hazel Dukes, they have been doing this work for decades. 
And I often talk to, to Hazel Dukes and I say, how have, Ma Dukes, how have you been able to do this work? She's been doing it longer than I've been alive. And the fact is, is that she's able to keep hopeful because every generation is responsible for doing this work and for moving it a little bit forward. And I know that we can do that. And that's what keeps me, uh, keeps me hopeful. And then finally, uh, the work of our young professionals, the individuals who have careers and opportunities that are responsible that uh, are, that those opportunities are available because of the work of civil rights leaders. And so I know that they will do even more, that they will accomplish even more that my parents were able to do and more than I was able to do. Um, and so those are the things that keep me inspired and that keep me hopeful. And do you think that it is possible for areas that have been devastated um, when there have been incidents of violence taking place for those areas to rebuild, to be re-energized? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it just takes a, a, a set of strategic investment. Um, I think that it's important for us to, you know, in Ferguson, we have an urban league that is there in St. Louis. And so they were able to build an empowerment center uh, that was specifically focused on the needs of African-American males, providing them with opportunities for job internships, mentoring, um, exposing them to uh, cultural events. And it's the, that investment that's important. It's also to invest in, obviously, the, the redevelopment of those of those buildings buildings of the of the real estate that's there and not only to re, to invest in it so that there's gentrification but to invest in it so that individuals are actually able to own and operate some of those uh, businesses themselves there's a lot of criticism that says why are people burning down their own communities and their own neighborhoods well the fact is is that the ownership of the of the people that are living there of the structures and the and the businesses in that community is very very small so you know, I'm I, I'm not justifying it. I don't believe in people vandalizing their their neighborhoods and their blocks. But however, they didn't own anything in those neighborhoods and their blocks, and so they didn't feel like they were they were burning anything that belonged to them. And so, in re in reinvesting in a community, it's important that that investment. It's something that, that community members are able to, to feel and be a part of. And so I think that there's opportunities for the development of those communities. Communities There's the opportunity, opportunity for the development of entrepreneurs and individuals who are real stakeholders in their communities. Our guest on our program today, Arva Rice, who is president and CEO of New York's Urban League. Would you give the uh, website for the Urban League, New York Urban League, you mentioned earlier? Absolutely. It's www.nyul.org. And what specifically can you use? What could people who are listening to our discussion today be helpful with? Oh, sure. So I think that if individuals want to uh, contribute to our COVID family fund, uh, as I mentioned, we are helping and supporting individuals who are still struggling for basic um, needs. And so we're providing cash assistance to those individuals so if they can um, help and invest in that, that would be fantastic. We are um, working to close the, the gap in um, income inequality by providing uh, educational and employment programming. So investing in the work and the critical work of the Urban League is something that we're helpful and supportive. And we also want to be supportive 
supportive of individuals who are starting conversations in their companies who are looking to diversify their staffing. So we also want to partner with them as well so they can reach out to us and we can talk about partnership opportunities. Arva, thank you very much for joining us on our program. Wonderful discussion. Certainly good luck continued with your work, the work of the New York Urban League. Thank you so much. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program on the Sunday Magazine, joined by Marty Hayden. Marty is Earth Justice's Vice President of Policy and Legislation. He represents Earth Justice on Capitol Hill. He's um, played a key role there since 1995, uh, working on environmental protections for areas like national forests and trying to promote more protection for uh, pristine forest lands. Uh, He's joining us on our program to talk with us about some of the uh, recent news regarding the climate and the Trump administration. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning, Marty. Well, good morning, Bob, and thank you very much for having me on. When you hear news from the Trump administration on um, the climate and on areas like climate change. Is there, is that news conflicting even within the administration these days? Well, the, the national climate assessment that came out on uh, the day after Thanksgiving, Mm Mm-hmm was the result of 13 agencies under the Trump administration that leveled the most dire warning we have heard on climate to date. Meanwhile, as you know, the president then, in reaction to that, says he doesn't believe it. Well, he can stick his head in the sand sand all he wants on climate change, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. Why do you think there seems to be such a disconnect on his part with, you know, findings like what we heard from this effort? I think it could be either one of two things. Um, And the first is maybe more disturbing than the second, although they both are disturbing. Uh, The first is either the president really does believe climate change is a hoax, or the second is climate change gets in the way of what he and his administration are doing and want to do for King Coal and Big Oil. You know, when he says that, you know, he, he puts it sometimes very simply and will say, I don't believe it. Or, I mean, those simple words are yet very powerful. How do advocates for the environment, advocates for the idea that climate change is occurring, how do you really work around that? Well, I think there's, you know, the very core of President Trump base uh, believes everything he says. So I don't think that's, uh, you know, I, I think the rest of the country, I think, you know, what is probably 70 percent or maybe better of the country isn't denying climate change. In fact, we know from uh, polling that about 70% of the country believes climate change is real and it's something important that we we address. And, you know, we're about to have we're about to have some important help here. And that was uh, the results of the 2018 elections in the U.S. House. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a green wave that came into the House in 2018. And and climate change is no longer going to be a uh, hoax in the U.S. House. 
And the power that the House is going to have is we have climate champions taking over all of the relevant committees that oversee issues related to climate change in the House of Representatives. And they're going to be able to hold the administration accountable through real oversight, compelling the release of information. They can subpoena. In some cases, they can depose witnesses. And this is an administration that has been completely unaccustomed to having any kind of meaningful oversight on it by the Congress. Probably the most impressive class of incoming new members I have seen in 30 years of doing this work. They are energized, they are committed, and and for the most part, they are very green. And so there's a lot of energy in the House. So to get back to your question, I think we're going to see a lot of attention in a lot of areas across the board. I'll just flag a few. In the climate space, they're going to be digging into the national climate assessment. I guarantee it. I think the report we were just talking about, they're going to dig deep on the administration's efforts to undo the Clean Power Plan, which is the climate rule to reduce carbon pollution from power plants. They're going to go after it. They're going to dig into their efforts to undo the methane rules, which reduce that powerful greenhouse gas emission from oil and gas development. And then I'm sure, certain they will dig into the clean cars rule, which is something the Trump administration is trying to undo, that is to make our cars be less polluting uh, both now and in the future. Outside of the climate space, I guarantee you they will look at, into the clean water rule, which protects the drinking water for one in three Americans. The Trump administration is talking about undoing the mercury rule for power plants. That rule saves. 11,000 lives each and every year right now, and nearly every power plant in the U.S. complies with it. Yet the Trump administration is looking at undoing it. Uh, just to name one last, well, a couple more. I think, I think they will get into the administration's decision not to go forward with a ban on chlorpyrifos, which is a dangerous pesticide. That was a, that's a neurotoxin that was first developed by the Nazis in World War II and is sprayed on our fruits and vegetables today, and it threatens our children and farm workers. They will also look at what the president's been up to on national monuments, particularly the shrinking of the Bears Ears and Grand Staircase national monuments in Utah, as well as I'm confident they will dig in deep on the administration's plans for oil and gas leasing off of all of our coasts and in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So do you expect that there's going to wind up being oversight from that new House majority, or are we going to be seeing things that will basically wind up with it being gridlock? Well, I think you can't gridlock oversight. And what I mean by that is they, they, they have ways of compelling the administration to produce the goods. So they can't, they can't exactly, they can't ignore them or else they face, they, they really create problems for themselves. So that's now in terms of gridlock with the hot, with the Senate and uh, with the Senate and in charge of, sorry, in terms of gridlock with the Senate run by uh, the Republicans. And then of course, with president Trump needed to sign uh, legislation, 
for the most part, this is going to be a, be a time for building, you know, for building the political will to take meaningful action on climate. We'll be able to pass a lot of bills out of the House, but the Senate won't move much. However, there are bills that are important to both of those bodies and to the president, and I think one of the first ones of that type that'll be, you know, coming to the fore is the infrastructure bill. And within a big infrastructure bill, there is the opportunity to do a lot of climate smart uh, policies and investments. And I think things like promoting and supporting the electrification of transportation, whether that's buses, cars, freight, you know, freight terminals or ports can happen, could happen in an infrastructure bill, making our electricity grids both more resilient and more aligned to help get more renewable energy to market can also be part of this. Helping communities build up their resiliency in the face of the impacts of climate change. The the climate assessment that just came out, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago now, or actually, I'm sorry, the climate assessment that just came out a little over a week ago, you know, pointed out we're already having the climate impact today. I mean, many of us knew this, but here is the, you know, nation's foremost scientist saying, yes, it's happening today. What we're seeing happening is because of climate. Our seas has, has risen seven to eight inches already, and half of that has been since 1993. And right now, 25 cities in the Atlantic and Gulf Coast are dealing with daily tidal flooding. This, these impacts are real. The, the, you know, the, the severe heavy rainfall, the, the intense frequent rainfall that we've seen here in the east this, this summer, that's related to climate. The report verifies that. So there are things we can do to help our communities, you know, prepare for those impacts and things, investments we can make in an infrastructure bill. And I think, I think that, that type of uh, legislation does have a chance. Marty Hayden is Earth Justice's Vice President of Policy and Legislation. He's our guest on our program and is uh, sharing some information with us. For those who don't know, how do you describe what Earth Justice is all about? Uh, well, Earth Justice's tagline is because the Earth needs a good lawyer. And as an organization, we're a nonprofit, we're the nation's largest nonprofit environmental law firm. We provide free legal representation to every, everyone from grassroots environmental groups to national, every national environmental organization you can name, to impacted communities, farm worker advocates, Native American tribes, and more. And to date, we have brought 115 cases against the Trump administration and counting. Uh, we are, you know, while I just said in, in Congress, you're not going to be able to pass big legislation and get it signed by the president, but we can stop the president and the courts, and that's what we do. Should be interesting watching exactly what does take place. Marty, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your thoughts with us on our program. Thank you very much. That does it for hour one of our program on the fan this Sunday morning. We've got more to get to after our top of the hour rundown of things in the sporting world right here on the fan.
We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 